Let's take the Word of God and turn to the book of Acts and uh, chapter uh, 16. Acts chapter 16, I trust that you have enjoyed as we walk and study uh, through the book of Acts and we come to chapter 16. We are on Paul's uh, second missionary journey and uh, we know that uh, the first one was mainly concentrated in Asia Minor. We know he went through the island of Cyprus and then into Asia Minor. On the second, remember, they wanted to check back on the churches that they had started, and so they began in Asia Minor, but then God led uh, Paul all the way west to Troas, and he didn't know where to go, and then God uh, gave him a vision with a Macedonian man who had two words, help us. And God, and God led Paul over to then Macedonia, and he ends up in Philippi, and we've been spending some time here in Paul's ministry in Philippi, which is not typical of what we've observed thus far. Uh, typically, Paul would always go to first a synagogue, and there he went to the synagogue to preach the gospel, to preach Jesus Christ. But here in Macedonia, particularly in Philippi, which is a Roman colony, it seems evident from the scriptures that there is no synagogue in Philippi. And so he found and heard about a prayer meeting that where the Jews would gather by a river on the Sabbath and Paul was going there and the ministry was quite slow. Uh, typically Paul would preach and people would believe the word of God and join themselves to Paul and would study uh, from the Apostle Paul. But here, so far as we've seen, is that there's been one convert, Lydia. And she has opened her home to Paul and uh, Silas. And here in Philippi, the ministry has been rather slow, but we've learned some things, and we're going to continue in our study and begin reading in verse 25. If you remember, last week we talked about how do you deal with trouble. Paul and Silas are going to be uh, beaten, uncondemned. Uh, they had been falsely accused. They're going to end up in prison, and in prison there they praise God and they pray to the Lord. And so we talked about how to deal with trouble in our lives and to follow the example of Paul. We're going to continue now and look into uh, Paul being in prison and what God did there in prison. <laughs> we uh, begin and uh, let's pretend, I know we know the story and the account, but let's just pretend we don't know, we haven't heard, and let's look at it afresh this morning to see what the Lord can teach us. Acts chapter 16 verse 25, the Bible says, And at midnight... Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison door open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, and sprang in, and came trembling, and fell down before Paul and Silas, and brought them out, and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. 
And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his straightway. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all of his house. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the surgeons, saying, Let those men go. And the keeper of the prison told this saying to Paul, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said unto them, They have beaten us openly uncondemned, being Romans, and have cast us into prison. And now do they thrust us out privily? Nay, verily, but let them come themselves and fetch us out. And the sergeants told these words unto the magistrates, and they feared when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and besought them and brought them out, and desired them to depart out of the city. And they went out of the prison and entered into the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they comforted them and departed. I want to preach uh, as I bring your attention to verse 40. Now just to be mindful, Paul and Silas, they return after they are let go from prison. They go to the house of Lydia where obviously the brethren were. And when they had seen the brethren, the Bible says they, Paul and Silas, comforted them, the brethren. Is it not strange? I want to preach this morning on the subject of the comfort we find in suffering. The comfort we find in suffering. As we finish here our study of uh, what happened in Philippi, we read about really two different aspects of Paul's life in Acts chapter 16. And I'm going to uh, study both of those, but it's going to be one message today and one message next week. And I believe that both aspects will be both helpful and even practical. The first part, which I'll deal with this morning, is I want to address here some lessons we find from Paul's ministry for Christ. And so there's one aspect here we see Paul as a minister, as a preacher, as a Christian, and his interaction in the prison and what happens there. But then I want to look at another aspect of Paul's life, and that is uh, trying to learn some lessons from Paul as a Roman citizen. And both of those, I think we can draw some lessons from. Uh, with those things in mind, I would like for you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. As Hold your place there, please, in Acts chapter 16 and turn to 1 Peter and uh, chapter 2. In 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, notice with me in verse 9 through 12. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. The Bible says here, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, an holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praise of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. There is a sense in which here He calls these uh, believers a holy nation. Uh, remember what Paul wrote to the church at Philippi in Philippians 3.20. He says, for our conversation 
is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto His glorious body, according to the working whereby He is able even also to subdue all things unto Himself. There is a sense in which as believers we are citizens of heaven. And we are. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. We are strangers and pilgrims in this world. We're just passing through. And so in 1 Peter he says, You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. But then he says in 1 Peter 2 verse 9, notice verse 10, Which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. But notice what he says in verse 11, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors, and he goes on. But here we find two aspects of our lives. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are strangers and pilgrims, but yet we are citizens on earth as well. And as believers, we must think about both of those aspects and learn how to live knowing that our citizenship is heaven, but knowing as well that we must have an impact in this world as citizens. And so I want to deal with the first this morning. So because we have a limited time, I will confine today's message to the first aspect of Paul's life as a minister of Christ, and then next week we'll address Paul's life as a Roman citizen. As we look at our text here in Romans chapter 16, we're going to uh, study uh, Paul's, uh, there's kind of a geographical location change. First we begin in the prison, then we move to the house of the jailer, and then we're going to move over to the house of Lydia. And so we're going to talk about those three changes and Paul's ministry in that. And the next week we'll deal with uh, his uh, debate here and the conflict with the law as a Roman citizen. And so we'll deal with that next week. So let, this morning I want us to consider first of all, as we look at our text, the suffering of the servants. The suffering of the servants. Now, we did not read it this morning, but if you remember, uh, just a few weeks ago we look at the arrest of Paul and Silas. Remember they had been falsely accused. Because the woman who was possessed with the spirit of divination, the spirit was cast out of her. And so the men of authority there could not make money off of that woman. And so they were mad. And so they brought false accusation against Paul and Silas. They uh, stirred up the city. And uh, they, by false accusation, they beat them. And then they put him in prison. And so we find here now Paul and Silas are in prison. And we could say here that they are indeed suffering. We talked about the emotional uh, impact that it must have had, the false accusation, uh, the association impact. Remember, this uh, woman with the spirit of divination was 
uh, crying out a message behind Paul. These are the people of God. They have a message. Listen to them. And they didn't want that association. And so there's a lot of turmoil and suffering. But then there's the physical beating that he experienced being uncondemned. And finally he is in prison. And so we could say here, as far as the world is concerned, they have been suffering. They've been through a difficult time. It's been a hard day of suffering. And as we look at the suffering, I want us to think about a few things as we look at Paul being in prison and the earthquake happening. And I want us to think about suffering. There's things that we learn about suffering and sometimes I think that we may allow suffering to determine the course of our actions and our decisions. And I believe often that is wrong. I want us to see here, first of all, as we think about the suffering of the servants, first of all, uh, Paul and Silas did not allow their suffering to hinder their praise. As we find ourselves there in prison, the Bible says in verse 25 of Acts 16, and at midnight, now that's late. Now remember, it's been a rough day. False accusation beating, being thrust into prison. Now it's midnight. We might think it's time to sleep. Not for Paul and Silas. They are in the midst of suffering and yet they are praising God. Yes, they're praying to the Lord, but they're praising God. The Bible says they sang praises. Now understand here, there is a specific praise that is attributed. This praise is not, oh, thank you for the suffering. We praise the suffering. No, no, no. The praise was unto God. Now that's important. You see, in the midst of their suffering, they did not allow their suffering to hinder their praise. And it is important for us to learn as believers, if we learn from Paul and Silas, that when there is difficulty and affliction and suffering in our lives, that we not allow that suffering to hinder our praise to God. Because no matter the amount of suffering or affliction that we go through, God is still worthy and always will be worthy of our praise. The first thing we learn. We also see here that they did not allow their suffering to blind their perspective. Now I want you to notice with me here in verse 26, the Bible says, And suddenly... There was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed. Now I want us to think for just a moment that an earthquake may cause the doors to open but for the chains to be loosed off of all of them, that's a clear miracle. You're sitting there in prison, all the prisoners, all the doors are open, And all the bands are loosed. So certainly there's an earthquake here and we might think uh, at this moment, freedom, run! (laughs) Isn't that what you would think? You're in prison, you've been praying to God, you've been praising to God, and immediately an earthquake, the doors fly open, (laughs) the bands are loosed, you think, let's run for it. No, that's not what they did. Now, let me ask you this. In the book of Acts thus far, has God done something like that already? He has. Remember for Peter? 
an angel came and basically escorted Peter out of the prison where he found himself outside the prison. And remember, they were praying for Peter and he knocked on the door. And then the young lady came and she saw it was Peter. And she didn't even open the door. She ran back and said, it's Peter. And so God has already delivered Peter out of prison. It's not something that they're unfamiliar with. But notice here, they don't run. We read in verse 27, And the keeper of the prison awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, drew his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. I want us to see here that they did not allow their suffering to blind their perspective. What I'm saying here is, could God... Could God have sent the earthquake to deliver them? Yes. But there is something that Paul and Silas needed from God in order not to run. Because they could see that as a sign from God. Peter had been delivered from prison. It's not something that God cannot do if he has already done so. But in suffering often, I think what happens is uh, our perspective might be blind to maybe another option and here Paul and Silas don't run as a matter of fact it's not just Paul and Silas it seems evident that all the prisoners are there so somehow they had to keep the prisoners in and say I know all the bands are loosed and the door is wide open and the keeper of the prison is sleeping but nobody is going anywhere now, the point is, you may ask at this time, well, how would he know at that moment that it's time to run or time to stay? I would answer it this way. Paul knew at that moment. But what I think did not happen is he did not allow his suffering to blind his perspective. If Paul was so focused on suffering instead of God and praising God, I think he would have ran for it. Why? Because it would mean the ceasing of suffering. If he's focused on the suffering, let's run so there will be no more suffering. But that's not his focus. And so he did not allow suffering to blind his perspective. So we also see, uh, thirdly, that they did not allow their own suffering as the basis to revile their persecutors. Do you notice in, uh, we read in, in verse 27, then the keeper of the prison, he wakes up and we see that he, uh, um, he sees that the prison doors open and he drew out his sword. Now, we, we might think at this time, why does he do that? Well, back then, when any assignment was given to a a soldier, particularly when he kept a prisoner. If that assignment was given to him, then he had the responsibility to see the assignment through. And if he failed, as I say, if a prisoner was entrusted to him, if the prisoner got away, the Roman soldier by law would lose his life. How would you like those odds? So the Roman jailer here. He knows what? I'm dead. I'm going to have to go through the whole process. How did they get out? What did you do? What were you doing? Well, he's going to have to say, well, I was sleeping. That's a failure, an assignment. 
Penalty, death. So here the Roman sojourner is so distressed, he says, I just want to get rid of it. Let's just do it now. I know that's the end. I was sleeping. Everybody's gone. And so I'm going to kill myself. And so we might think again at that moment. Now it seems evident that Paul and Silas knew that that's what he was doing because they cried out for him to stop. But the point I'm making to you is just earlier in our text, we find that this same man, he thrust them into prison. That means he threw them in there with violence. And so understand here, when they're in the midst of suffering, they here in this moment did not allow their suffering, their own suffering, as the basis to revile their persecutors. Sometimes we might think, well, I am a suffering at the hand of somebody else, therefore it gives me the ability to hate them because of what they're doing to me. And Paul and Silas probably thought, they could have thought, they could have thought at that moment, good riddance, he's going to kill himself, is going to open the door and we can walk right out. God got rid of our persecutor. But that's not what happened. There's one more thing we learn. In verse 28 and 29, Paul cried with a loud voice saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas. We see that they did not allow their suffering to produce a callous spirit towards people. Paul could have been callous thinking, I remember how this man threw me violently in prison and put me in chains. I haven't forgotten. And here now that the earthquake has happened, this man now, did you see him? He comes in weakness, the same man who grabbed a hold of Paul and threw him in prison. This same man now, he asks for a light and he comes and he's shaking, he's trembling. Now you say, why is he shaking? He was about to kill himself. Have you ever faced a time when it was, you, you, you thought maybe that you would die and the, you have the adrenaline rush that comes in and you thought to yourself, this could be it. Your li- life flashes before you. Uh, I, I remember I was uh, a few years back I uh, thought to myself, hey, I'm, I, I've cut trees before, but we had a big tree in the backyard, and I thought to myself, I'll cut the tree down myself. Big tree, not a good idea if you've never done it before. So I thought to myself, I'll climb that tree, and then I had all the children out the outside there watching me cut down the tree, and I was on the tree, and then I was trying to get an angle on the tree, and I thought to myself, you know, that tree could, if I cut it wrong, it could fall on me. And then my children could all witness their father being killed. And there's like a, there was that moment of rush, and I, I started shaking. I said, Pastor, were you scared? Yes, I was. And I'm not ashamed to say it. I thought to myself, I don't want my children to grow without a father. And so there's this, this moment, I thought, what am I doing? This man had the sword already drawn, and he was about to kill himself. And now he comes in trembling. There's no mockery from Paul. Ha <laughs> ha, look at you. Pathetic little creature. That's what you get for treating us like that. Isn't that though the impulse of the flesh? I've suffered. I will joy when you suffer then because I've suffered too. No. They did not allow their suffering to produce a callous spirit towards people. So the question I have then as we look about uh, at the suffering of the servants 
What have we allowed our suffering to do to us? Have we allowed our suffering to hinder our praise? Have we allowed our suffering to blind our perspective? Have we allowed our suffering to be the basis by which we, we, we revile others? And have we allowed our suffering to produce a callous spirit towards other people because of what we've been through? They did not allow any of those things to happen. So we see the suffering of the servants, but then we see, secondly, the salvation of the soldier. This is quite amazing here. The reason why I say that's amazing is so far in the book of Philippi, the only thing that's been recorded has been what? The conversion of Lydia. That's it. Now, could there have been more? There might have been more, but there is none other that's recorded. The point I'm saying is thus far the ministry of Philippi has been pretty slow. But God is going to bring Paul. God, in other words, the work has been slow. And then God is going to allow Paul and Silas to go through suffering. And it's going to be in their suffering that the salvation of the loss is going to be achieved. Now, we notice a number of things here in the salvation of the soldier. I want us to see here, first of all, and we have to think about the whole of Paul's ministry to, to appreciate what's going on here. The first thing we see as we consider the salvation of the soldiers, first of all, we see an improbable, an improbable occasion. What I'm saying is, if Paul hadn't gone through this bout of suffering, he would have never ended up in the house of the jailer. Now that's important. Uh, notice, as we read here about the earthquake in our text, we might immediately think that it happened to set Paul and Silas free. Scripture tells us clearly that the doors had been opened, that the bands had been loosed in verse 26. However, Paul and Silas did not run for their freedom. And so we have to ask the, ourselves the question there now is this, what was the earthquake for then? Well... Verse 26 says that the earthquake caused the foundations of the prison to be shaken. The word foundations here refers to the substructure of the building. Um, and we might venture to say here that the building was no longer safe for the prisoners of the prison to dwell in. Now, the reason why I say that is because when the jailer comes in, immediately he takes them out. Uh, notice, if we look at the progression of the text, um, <clears throat> notice verse 29. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas. Notice, it's, it's a comma, and brought them out. That's the first thing he did. So when he comes in trem trembling with the light, obviously it was dark, nobody could see anything. He comes with a light, and the first thing he does, he brings them out. Out of what? Well, the prison. And said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved and thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord, and to all that were in his house. Now, do you get that here? So I think here, I think my idea before is that, well, the jailer comes in and says, What must I do to be saved? That's not what happened. If you look at the text, he comes in, he brings them out. And then there's the question, he asks them, what must I do to be saved? And they tell him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved and thy house. 
and then they spoke the word of the Lord while they were in the house. So this is what I believe happens based on the text. That the jailer went in prison trembling. The first thing he did, he brought them out to go where? Well, to his house. Remember, as the centurion, he is the one that has charge. He can't just drop them off somewhere else. It's his responsibility. So he takes all the prisoners to his house, and it is at his house, or maybe on the way to the house, that he asks them the question, what must I do to be saved? And when the Bible says the, the presentation is made, the word of God is taught, it is taught to all that were in the house. So what I'm saying here is we see an improbable occasion. The earthquake happened to give Paul and Silas an opportunity to speak the word of the Lord, not only to the prison guard, but to his entire house. From the text, we learn that the jailer took Paul and Silas to his house, and that it was there at the house that Paul and Silas spoke the word of the Lord. Now, after they had done speaking... Because then we reread later in verse 34. And when he had brought them into his house. Now we say, well, wait a minute. I thought they were already in the house. Well, yeah, well, they went out to get baptized in verse 33. You see that? So they were already in the house. They had to leave the house to get baptized, maybe at a river or a pool. And then they came back in the house to eat meat. And so that's the order of the events. So here's what we learn. The earthquake did not happen in order to give them freedom from their bonds. The earthquake happened in order to give them freedom to speak the word of the Lord. Ah, well, that's quite different. Earthquake, everything loose. Freedom to do what? Freedom to go to this man's house and to preach the word of the Lord. So we see an improbable occasion. That occasion would not have happened by any other means but the suffering. We see an improbable occasion, but also we see an important question. Now the question is fundamental here. The man says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now I believe here because of the description of the Bible, it says he brought them out. And then he asked the question. So it could have been on the way. And then he answered that when he went to the house and gave the word of the Lord to everybody. Or he could have asked them when he got to the house and said, what must I do to be saved? So maybe there was conversation before then, before the Philippian jailer uh, asked this important question. But this is a fundamental question, is it not? What must I do to be saved? And we might think at this time, based upon the religions of the world and the people that we speak to on a weekly basis that we try to witness to, they'll say something like this. If I ask them, what must I do to be saved? We'll say, well, go to church. Well, read your Bible. And do this and do that and be a good person and be a good neighbor. And uh, finally, I, I get to the place where I said, well, so basically what you mean is just try to follow the law and be a good person. You say, well, yeah, that's, that's really what I mean. Is that the Paul of... The answer of Paul and Silas? No. Notice what they say in verse 31. They said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Now, believe is to place your faith, your trust, to be completely dependent on who? The Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a reason why he uses all three of those. 
You see, Jesus is first Lord. That means what? He is deity. He is God. All authority belongs to Him. He is the creator of the universe. All things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. And so He is the Lord, but He is also Jesus. That means He became flesh. He dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, because He is Lord, full of grace and truth. And so, Jesus Christ, uh, by the way, when He was made flesh and when He was introduced to the world, He was introduced by John the Baptist. When John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. And so Jesus Christ was made flesh, and the reason why He was made flesh was to come to take away the sin of the world. And when did He do that? He did that on the cross of Calvary when He died as the substitute to be the payment for the sin of all mankind. He is the Lord Jesus, but He is also the Christ. He is the anointed one. The anointing speaks that He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Yes, He was made of flesh and He dwelt among us and we beheld Him. And He died on the cross a cruel death to die as the substitute for our sin. But then He ascended up to heaven and He is seated at the right hand of the throne of high. He is the anointed one, the chosen one who will rule and reign forever. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. You must believe on Him. And if you believe on Him, you will be saved. You remember, we just studied just not too long ago, well maybe it was a year ago, when uh, Peter and the apostles were said, well, we'll let you go, but you cannot teach or preach in the name of Jesus Christ. Do we remember what Peter said? So we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. For there is none other name given among men whereby we must be saved. Salvation is found in no one else and not in anything else but Jesus Christ. Now by the way, where did this question arise it arises in suffering. Do, do, do we think that if Paul had crossed the path of that jailer in the streets of Philippi, that he would have randomly asked him that question? Probably not. But God allowed the suffering in his life to bring about a work not only in the life of Paul and Silas, but also in the life of that jailer, who, by the way, was about to kill himself. But he just heard just a moment ago these people who had been mistreated, who had been falsely accused, who had been violently beaten, are singing and praising God in the prison. There's something different about these people. There seems to be a hope that they have that I do not have. So we see an improbable occasion. We see an important question. We also see an immediate decision. So we say, okay, well, what, what happened here? Well, immediately, verse 33, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his, notice, straightway. And so they got baptized. Now, by the way, remember, when the earthquake hit, what time was it? Midnight. Well, after he woke up, he brings them out, brings them to his house. It's late. Later, um, uh, 
we see here, he'll mention here that this is the, the same hour. So this is a late night, but they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and then they all go baptized. Like, it's, it's, it's the middle of the night. What, what are you doing? Just wait till, wait till the morning. Well, no. God has just done a great work in suffering. We're not going to delay any obedience to God. So we see the immediate decision, but then we see an impactful conversion. As we look at particularly the jailer, there is evidence of his conversion. Now remember, his conversion happened based on what? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's what the Bible says. But I want you to notice here, without being asked to do those things, this is what the Philippian jailer does. First of all, we see that his actions changed. Notice verse 33. And he took them the same hour of the night, so we know, we know it's all the same night, and washed their stripes. Now, you know what that tells us? Paul is still hurting physically from the beating that day. But early on, if you go back to verse 23 and 24, and when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison. The word thrust means to throw, to cast. The word thrust is more than just the idea of just throwing. It is accompanied by a description. It communicates the idea of intensity and violence. He thrust them into prison. And now, go down to verse 33 of the same chapter, and the Bible says, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. It's interesting. The word took means to bring near. Oh, what a picture. From early on when the jailer violently threw them in prison. And now he takes them, brings them near. The, the word took actually means to receive near, to associate yourself with another. There is a wide contrast here between the jailer then and the jailer now. What has happened? He has believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the question is asked, uh, he's doing some good thing, but I ask what is the, the basis of his actions? The basis of his actions is change life. You see, is it possible for people in the world to do morally good acts? Of course it is. But what I say to you is there is no basis for those good acts apart from God. So I'll do good. Well, the question is why? Why do good? If there is no God, why would you do good? Well, because it's good. Well, why is it good? You see, morality and goodness... If there is no God, if there is no basis, is nothing at all. So his actions changed, but also we see his perspective changed. You notice verse 34, he had brought them into the house and set meat before them and received and notice and rejoiced, believing in God with all of his heart. So this Roman jailer, remember, just a few moments ago had nearly committed suicide. Verse 27, he had drawn out his sword, 
The Bible says he would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. So he was on the verge of killing himself. This man had been this. He had been hopeless. And yet, now, he is what? The Bible says he is rejoicing. Now, the word rejoice means to joy, to exult, to be glad with exceeding joy. Uh, what a contrast between a man who's about to kill himself to the point now when he is just full of joy. Now, it is important here that we not separate the evidence of this man's rejoicing with the source of this man's rejoicing. Do you see the Bible? It says, And he rejoiced, believing in God. So the rejoicing cannot be separated from his belief in God. The rejoicing is the product, the outcome of his belief in God. And so it was evidence here that something happened that changed this man's life. You know, many people see the change that God brings about in a person's life. I think it's evident when somebody gets saved. But I think often they dismiss the source of the change. You know, I'm sure that many of you have had family members and may, maybe grew up in a family setting, and then, but then you have uh, came to faith in Jesus Christ, and then now your, your family looks at you different. And they might look at your behavior and your actions and your joy, and there's a different perspective, and there's a different life that you lead now because that you are saved and that you are Christian. And often they may see those things, and they may criticize your action, but often what they dismiss is the source of the change. God is the author of that. It's not somebody trying to uh, turn over a new leaf to make their lives better. God has done a miracle in the heart of that individual. And God has changed them. And they can't but help themselves because of what God has done. The source of the change is always God. He rejoiced. Why? Believing in God with all of his house. From about to committing suicide... To now sitting around eating meat full of joy. Why? Because of God. But I want to notice one more thing. We're going to skip over to the conflict with the citizenship and come to the last verse. Notice verse 40. And they went out of the prison and entered into the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they comforted them and departed. Doesn't it seem peculiar that it was those who had been violently treated that did the comforting? We might think that Paul and Silas needed the comfort of the brethren. Uh, not so here. It was apparently the brethren that needed the comfort of Paul and Silas. Uh, that, that is so contrary to our thinking, isn't it? That we might think, well, I've gone through suffering and so I need other people's comforts. But let me remind you here that Paul and Silas were not the victims of persecution that needed the comfort of the saints. Paul and Silas were the victors in persecution that were equipped to comfort the saints. They were not victims. 
They were victors. There's a, a verse that says, I can't remember off the top of my head, but, that, but the Bible says that wherewith we comfort one another, having been comforted of the Lord. You see, we understand that suffering, when God allows suffering in our lives, it's not so that we might run around seeking the comforts of men around us. The reason why God allows us to go through suffering is so that we might be comforted of God, so that in turn we can comfort others where, with the comfort wherewith we have been comforted. And so Paul and Silas, they go back to the house of Lydia, and they'll say, you won't believe what God did for us. In the suffering. And here's words of comfort that we'll deliver to you. You see, they weren't victims at all. As Christians, we are never victims. We are victors in God. Always. You see, the victor is not the one who sees no persecution. The victor is the one who sees how God works in persecution. The Bible says they went out of the prison, they entered into the house of Lydia, and when they had seen the brethren, they comforted them. So you see the scene? Paul comes in. It's not the people saying, oh, poor Paul. Look at your stripes, look at your pain. Look at what you've gone through. Are you okay? No. Paul and Silas come in. I would imagine if they needed the comfort in the house, they were distraught. Why? Well, they were distraught for Paul and Silas. They'd have been in prison, falsely accused, beaten. No doubt they had been witnesses of that. Isn't it interesting that those who often need the comfort are not those who go through the suffering, but those who do not. Why? Because it is in the suffering that God comforts us and when we receive comfort from Him. And so understand what suffering does. Suffering equips us to do something for others that we could not do without the suffering. So we learn from Paul's ministry as we consider the suffering of the servants, the salvation of the soldier, and the solace for the saints. May the Lord help us not to allow suffering to do things for us that might cause us to become victims. But might we take in the suffering and learn from that suffering and to see what God wants to do in the midst of suffering. The ministry of Paul in Philippi has been, we would say, slow, not really effective, until, until suffering came. And when suffering came, then Paul was able to experience at Philippi what he could not do himself. God did with suffering. That's something we must learn. Sometimes we might try to do something and use our strength and our energy 
And that God will often come and He will teach us that when we have no strength and no energy, as in the case of Paul and Silas, beaten down, that's when God uses His power to do the greatest work. So may we learn that.